Welcome to Jaffa Space, a podcast about the world of food, farming, and environmental education, or Jaffe. In this season, we'll be sharing the recordings of a six-part speaker series called Acting for Change, Creating Justice, produced by Ecar Farms, an earth-based Jewish urban farm in Denver, Colorado. We will look at how to use ancient Jewish traditions like Shemitah to catalyze conversations that inspire individual and collective actions to work towards justice. Each episode will have a new speaker to explore the interwoven themes of Judaism, connection to the land, and modern social justice movements. We hope this series will inspire you to take action on some of these issues during the upcoming Shemitah year. This series is produced in partnership with Chazon and the Shemitah Project. If you would like to learn more about Shemitah-related events and educational opportunities from now through the end of the Shemitah year, visit ShemitahProject.org. This first episode features co-hosts Hannah Perez-Postman and Adam Brock and their guest speaker, Nati Passau. Today, we will learn about a framework for understanding the history of Jewish agriculturalism and how the practice of Shemitah developed. Enjoy. The series was conceived of by Adam Brock, our co-facilitator, and Ikar as a deep exploration of what it means to embody Jewish values as they connect to the rhythms of justice and the land. So each month we will hear from amazing speakers across movements for environmental justice, immigration rights, food justice, and more who are dedicated to their fields of activism. This series will explore the possibilities of joining important movements that already exist in our communities while reflecting on the questions of how this connects to our Jewish values and how our faith and our work in the world can continue to be strengthened by each other. Every month, so you can go to our website, ecarfarm.org backslash shemitah-events to register and learn about the events that will be coming up. We'll be doing these um, monthly on Sundays, typically around the third Sunday of the month, and you can look at the calendar to see the dates. Um, also, every month we're posting resources for you to explore in advance or post the conversations. So you can visit ecarfarm.org backslash Shemitah resources, which Adam is also posting in the chat to see some of the resources we're sharing. They, they range from, you know, text studies to articles, podcasts, and things to kind of get you thinking. There are also discussion questions that we post there for folks who are joining, not in the cohort who wanna explore. Um, so a little about Ecar Farm. Uh, Ecar Farm is a community farm located in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and we operate at the intersections of urban farming, earth-based Jewish learning, food justice, and community building. So this event is kind of hits on all of our favorite things. Okay, so to ground us uh, in this moment, I just want to take a minute and um, kind of get everyone situated in place, which can be helpful when we're talking to screens. Um, so I think just for this moment, if everyone could take a deep breath in and out and maybe just glance around your surroundings. Uh, what's the temperature like? Can you see outside of your window? 
Um, where are you in the room? What is your body making contact with? And just remembering that even though we're floating heads, we are also uh, bodies and beating hearts in this together. Because Shemitah is at its heart a land-based practice, and because IKAR is an organization that farms in North America, we feel that it's important for us to acknowledge the history and context of the land that we're on and the people who lived here before colonization, some of whom continue to live here today. So we encourage you at home to learn more about the lands you're on and begin that work in like working that into your understanding of where you're located and what it means to be a settler on stolen land. You can visit uh, native-lands.ca, which Adam put in the chat, and type in your zip code to learn the names of the tribes that tended to the land where you are far before the invention of the United States of America. Um, land.ca is a great resource and I love sharing it. Um, the land acknowledgement that I'm about to speak was written in collaboration or it's from Perry Cardine of the Pearlstone Retreat Center and with some additions by Adam Brock and myself. We gather virtually today on stolen land, land that belongs to no one, but was tended lovingly for thousands of years by Cheyenne, Ute, Arapaho and other nations whose names have been lost to history. We did not receive permission to be here and no amount of words can do justice to the suffering that those nations experienced at the hands of European settlers. Today, we find ourselves at another moment of struggle. Our world and the people on it are convulsed by fevers, both metaphorical and very literal. We are quarantined at home, while civil unrest is in the streets and extreme weather ravages the landscape and our democracy is in peril. And still the sun rises, the birds sing, the rains cool the parched soil, and still love happens and is woven into the fabric of our days. We gather here today in the hope, always present, that love can heal that the traumas of the past and present can yet be overcome with compassionate learning, collaboration, and graceful action. May this humble gathering serve as a small step towards remembering our true place in the dance of life, a small step on our long path back home. And now I'm going to turn it over to uh, my co-facilitator, Adam Brock. Thank you, Hannah, for opening us with uh, such intention. Uh, yeah, so I'm the other co-facilitator of uh, the Rhythms of Change cohort and uh, the speaker series. And it's my pleasure and honor uh, to introduce our guest for today, Nati Passau. Um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm very much a beginner in my own journey towards uh, reconnecting Judaism with earth-based practices. But I can say that uh, right from the get-go, when I first learned about this beautiful uh, movement, Nati's name came up as one of its leaders. And my 
my experiences with Nati uh, have only confirmed that in the time that, that I've known him. Uh, Nati for many years was the executive director of an organization called the Jewish Farm School, uh, which oversaw hundreds of programs for children, college students and adults around the intersection of Judaism and agriculture. And I think did as much as almost any institution over the last couple of days in really kind of codifying these connections between Judaism and the land that now thousands of people across the country are really um, taking to heart and in many cases building their livelihoods off of. These days, uh, Nati is an assistant professor of sustainable food systems at Temple University, and he's the operations manager for the incredible organization Dayenu, uh, a Jewish call to climate action. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand it off to you, Nati, to uh, introduce our topic today of Shemitah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Hannah and Adam and Sue for organizing and for inviting me to come. And thank you all for taking time today to uh, to enter into this conversation. So um, I want to start uh, with a little if we were in a, a smaller group or in person, this would be kind of a, a, a go around. Um, but um, with our technology, we'll use the chat. So if you could drop in the chat um, your name, your pronouns, where you find yourself this morning, and one way that you have benefited from agriculture in the last week. Um, so you can start that um, while I kind of continue with my introduction. Um, so I first got interested in farming and kind of the Jewish perspective on farming really through the lens of Shemitah when I was in college, I um, took a class on religion and social justice and urban development and somehow managed to like write a paper about um, the, the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year and the Jubilee, which is the 50th year after seven cycles of seven years. And that really kind of blew my mind at the time. Um, I was raised in a fairly traditional Jewish home, um, but my parents were not, um, did not have green thumbs. We did not do a whole lot of environmental things. Um, and the concept of the Shemitah year was just something that was very foreign to me. I didn't, I didn't really um, come across it much growing up. And so when I did, I, I found it really fascinating and it really encouraged me and enticed me into diving deeper into um, this, these connections between Judaism and agriculture. Um, maybe a little ironic that the thing that got me interested in the topic was the practice of specifically not farming for a year. Um, but trying to understand that um, in the larger context of the Jewish agricultural blueprint. Um, and I think it, what, what maybe really resonated with me was that um, during college, I'd really ma made a very personal Shabbat practice. Like, like I said, I grew up in a pretty traditional home where um, we, we celebrated Shabbat every week and Shabbat meant a lot of rules, a lot of things we were not allowed to do. Um, and going to kind of a pluralistic Jewish school where people had different types of observances, um, that often left me jealous. Other people were hanging out on Friday nights and Saturdays or going to the movies or doing things. And for me, Shabbat was all about all these things that I wasn't allowed to do. Um, and in college, I actually kind of flipped that and, and began to realize that having one day a week where my main role was to not do any homework um, was actually really profound. Um, and it kind of freed me up to do a lot of other things and be present in a way that during the rest of the week I wasn't. And so then kind of learning about, about Shemitah, um, I realized this connection between Shabbat, the weekly Shabbat and, and 
one day out of seven days where we take a break from our work in the world, and the Shemitah year, one year out of seven where we take a break from our work in the world. Um, kind of narrowly defined in agricultural terms, but I think you can, we'll also kind of get into that a little bit today of how you can extrapolate some of the bigger ramifications from that. Um, so I'm just kind of scanning the, um, the chat a little bit and a lot of things about, um, thank you all for sharing, and a lot of things about um, flowers and food and things that you've been able to consume um, in the last week. Um, all direct benefits of agriculture. I am drinking a cup of coffee, which I definitely would not be drinking were it not for agriculture. And I'm grateful for that. Um, one of the main benefits from agriculture, um, though, that I would argue is the fact that, like, we don't have to grow food. In an agricultural society, most people don't actually need to grow food. That's one of the main benefits. It frees us up to do a lot of other things. Um, and um, so when I started kind of diving into this um, topic, I really wanted to understand what does Judaism, how does Judaism see agriculture in the first place? And, and where does it position this practice of the Shemitah year um, in this larger context? And, and how th this basic fact, that um, in an agricultural society, not everyone needs to be engaging in the process of either finding, hunting, gathering, collecting, growing food. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? So I want to start with um, uh, walking us through a bit, a little bit of a slideshow. Um, can everyone see that? Looks good. All right. So. Um, this is kind of my my theory on Jewish farming. What does what does Judaism have to say about agriculture? And we don't have to get very far until we we see agriculture show up in our tradition, in our text. Um, and the first place is actually in the Garden of Eden itself. Right. So if you're familiar with the story, um, God places Adam and Eve in the garden. It is full of abundant food. Um, says that the, it is full of, um, of, of food to eat, all different types of food to eat. Um, and um, this framing that, that I, I get from Rabbi Arthur Waskow, um, a great environmental activist and social justice activist here in Philadelphia, is he says that God says, I'm going to put you in this garden. There is so much abundance. Everywhere you turn, there is abundance. All I'm asking is that you show the tiniest bit of restraint. So there's a tree in the middle of the garden and that garden and that tree is hands off. Don't eat that, eat, don't eat the fruit from that tree. And that tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat it, then you will surely die. So Adam and Eve are in the garden for like 20 minutes before the snake comes along and convinces Eve to eat from the tree. Um, and Eve then convinces Adam to eat from the tree. And sure enough, God comes around and says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In suffering shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you and you shall eat the grass of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. So there's a very stark contrast that's presented here. Um, when Adam and Eve are placed in the garden originally, they're given a mandate, to work and to protect. And the Hebrew for work, le'ovda, is, is also work, it's also used in religious context. It's also used to serve, to serve in a religious uh, fashion. So even you can even understand that as their mandate is to serve and protect the garden, right? They're stewards, they're caretakers of it. And in return, they're gonna ha have all of this bounty. And then after this switch, after eating from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, everything is flipped. They leave the garden, now, instead of having this kind of nurturing, um, co-beneficial uh, uh, stewardship relationship with the planet, the ground is now cursed for their sake. And in suffering, they're going to eat all of the days of their lives. So one way of understanding this transition is that this is kind of an archetypal story telling of the agricultural revolution, which we know took place uh farming first started in the the near east at, at some in different regions around there um at, at roughly the time that this story takes place um and that this might be kind of like the oral tradition the oral the the the, the oral history that got passed down as to what that story was about and there's a couple of clues in the story that that point us to this theory that this is really talking about the agricultural revolution. So first of all, in the Garden of Eden, they're gatherers, right? There's just all this abundant fruit growing and they're gonna be able to eat from it. Um, when they get kicked out of the garden, they're gonna have to work, they're gonna have to toil, they're gonna have to sweat. So as any of you who have farmed before in any serious way, you know that it's hard work. Um, Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, right? Often you're planting things, but then like the, the thorns and the thistles are growing up and outcompeting what you're trying to grow. Um, it's a constant struggle. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread. 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 The Hebrew actually says bread. Bread is not uh, a food that was eaten in pre-agricultural times because bread is kind of the epitome of an agricultural food product. Um, not only does is it made from domesticated grains, but it's, uh, it requires kind of being in place for a long period of time, um, which um, hunter-gatherer societies were not. Um, it also says, you shall, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you and you shall eat the grass of the field. Well, um, the grains that, we, that are staples of our diet today and were staples of early agricultural societies are in fact grasses, right? They're grasses of the field, um, as opposed to the fruit that was was being consumed in the garden. Um, there's a really interesting read on what exactly this tree of knowledge and of good and evil is in this context. Um, and one way of understanding it is that, um, well, two points about this. One is that you, you can understand this discernment between good and evil. Another way of translating that is it's the knowledge of, of what to nurture and what to destroy. And when you think about the act of gardening or farming, that's essentially what you're doing. You are choosing what to nurture and what to destroy, 
right? There's no biological definition of a weed. A weed is a plant that's growing where you don't want it to grow. So in that case, you pluck it out, you kill it, and you nurture the plants that you want to grow, which is not something that we do that we would do in, in kind of a more wild space. Um, it's not something that we did before agriculture. Um, and so that is maybe what that, that tree is really indicating. There's also a very interesting discussion in the Talmud where the rabbis are debating what kind of tree it was. Um, and it's almost certainly not an apple, even though that's what is commonly depicted in, in, in kind of uh, popular culture. Um, but there's even an opinion that, it's, that the, the tree is actually wheat. And wheat was the first domesticated grain. Um, and so further kind of supporting this idea that what this story is really about is the agricultural revolution. We then go on to um, Adam and Eve um, have two kids, Cain and Abel. One is a shepherd and one is a farmer. And as you are probably familiar with the story, Cain kills Abel um, in a fit of jealousy. Again, further kind of maybe representing this archetype of the farmer killing the shepherd. Historically, farmers and shepherds are, are often at tension. Farmers um, in agricultural societies need private property. They, they want fences. That, that It's very clear what is my field, what is your field. Shepherds, on the other hand, literally live on the margins of the society and require grazing lands, require commons, require um, resources that are communally stewarded and shared. And so there's often tension between farmers and shepherds. And this gets kind of um, embodied in this, in, in this conflict between Cain and Abel. So um, let's stop this share for a second. I want to kind of open it up. When we start farming, what are some of the implications of farming? What is, what is it how does farming change us as a society, um, as humans? Um, and we can either, um, if people want to just unmute themselves and, and share some answers verbally, that's great. And you can also um, add in the chat as well, if that's easier. So what are some of the implications of farming? How does, the, how does farming change human experience on kind of some fundamental levels? Um, Cain was the farmer to answer that question. Um, yeah, so grains can be stored, Jess says. Um, great, right? So, um, which is something that in hunter-gatherer societies, you have limited opportunity to store surplus in large part because you're migratory, you're moving with the seasons. As resources become scarce, you move to where they're more abundant. Um, in an agricultural society, you can grow in abundance, a surplus in a good year, and then you can store that. Great, we're gonna come back to that in a second. Um, you have to stay in one place and not be nomadic. Exactly, those two things are related. You stay in one place, your crops take longer to, you have to invest time before you can harvest. Um, and and the, the, the bonus is that you can then store your surplus and you don't have to carry it anywhere. Um, so we settle cities and um, exactly, that's where we get to start to um, have more permanent settlement. Um, land becomes a commodity. Yes, that's, that's, I would argue that that's not inherent in agriculture, but it certainly has been um, the case in, in most cases in human history that land then becomes property, right? Private property, um, and it becomes a commodity that can get bought and sold. Um, 
Farming can lead to soil degradation, certainly. Diversity of jobs, that's a really important one, right? So like I said earlier, when in an agricultural society, you can have a small percentage of the population growing food and that frees up other people to do other things. So this is where we start to see um, division of labor and specialization. So you start to see um, um, crafts um, take on a whole new another level. Permanent settlement also allows um, metal work to take to advance in a serious way because you can build um, forges and 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 ovens that can get to a much higher temperature so that you can work with metal in a way that you couldn't before. Um, Yes, we focus on the weather, we pray for rain, etc. I will get back to that. That is a, a big one. Food becomes a commodity. Absolutely. Um, so yes, these are all these are all good points and keep them coming. Um, so one way of understanding this idea of growing a surplus is that agriculture essentially allows us to generate wealth. If you define wealth as having more than you need at any moment, um, agriculture in a good year allows us to do that in a very su substantial way. Um, and because we're not moving every few months, we can store that surplus somewhere. But who's going to store it? Who's going to be in charge of that? Well, with the division of labor and specialization, you can now have people whose dedicated job is to store and guard the surplus, essentially like an army or a police force. So the question is, who controls that? And what we start to see in early agricultural societies is, is much more hierarchy, social and economic hierarchy. You have different classes and castes of people. Um, often the people who are the most revered are also the ones who are holding the surplus, who are, who are in charge of the surplus. Um, and so we see this um, in very clear detail in our tradition um, when we get to the story of Joseph in Egypt. So if you're familiar, or if you're not familiar with the story, Joseph, who is an Israelite, has, has made his way to Egypt after being sold into slavery by his bro jealous brothers. <laughs> Through a long series of events, he ends up being kind of the main assistant to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh has a series of dreams that Joseph interprets to mean that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And his idea during the seven years of plenty is to enact a tax on the entire land and basically take in a percentage of the surplus each year and store it, which he does. And then when the famine hits, we see in this text that there was no food in the land of Egypt. And after everyone had kind of used up whatever food surpluses they had on a personal level, they come to the Pharaoh um, and they say, give us bread, give us food. Um, and so um, Joseph and the Pharaoh give them food and they eat that up and, and they, they, they collect all the money from, from the people. And after one year, all the money is gone. So then they come back and say, we need more food. We need more seeds, please help us out. And Joseph says, okay, give me all of your livestock, give me all of your land and give me your bodies. And then I will give you food. So within just a couple of years of there being scarcity in, an, in a society that is now dependent on abundance, whoever controls that surplus has enacted, has, has, has gained a tremendous. Um, and um, 
So the pharaoh has consolidated all of this power, enslaved large numbers of people, not only from Egypt, but also from the neighboring countries that were also experiencing um, this famine. And this is really how the power gets consolidated. So we have to understand that this is this, this is kind of the, the epitome of the dangers of agriculture, um, where it allows power and, and food and resources to be consolidated in the hands of a few, um, and therefore sets up a very hierarchical and oppressive society. And the Israelites are not immune from this. At this point, Joseph's family is still living in Canaan, in ancient Israel. They they, they come down to Egypt because that's where the food is, and they end up settling there. Now, they are shepherds, which is important to keep in mind. Um, the early ancestors were not farmers. They were shepherds, and they come to an agricultural society. They're even afraid of being there because they know that farmers don't like shepherds, and they're afraid that they're going to be harassed. But Joseph sets them up with some prime grazing land, and that's where they settle. And then generations pass, the, there's a new pharaoh who enslaves um, the Israelites. And so, and that's when the Israelite nation really starts to flourish from a population perspective. So our ancestral enca first encounter with farming is by being oppressed through an agricultural society. Um, and that is an important framing for the way that, that, that our tradition kind of sees agriculture more generally. And so then, um, the Israelites are, you know, the Passover story, the Exodus are leaving Egypt and they go and they wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, an interesting note about their food source in the desert, does anyone know what their food source is in the desert? Manna, right, thank you, Daniel. Um, so manna is this magical substance that appears every day, and the rules governing it are that you go out, you collect what you need for the day. If you take more than you need, it will spoil. It's, it's, you're not allowed to take more than you need. Um, with the one exception being on Friday, you can take a double portion for Shabbat, because um, that way you don't have to work on Shabbat and go out and collect um, the, the food on Shabbat. Um, so, um, I think of that almost as like a palate cleanser, right? We've been living in this agricultural society for hundreds of years. We experienced its oppression. We go out into this um, time in, in Egypt, this wandering in the desert where we are meant to kind of shed the identity as enslaved people. And we revert to a gathering way of feeding ourselves where every day you take what you need you're not, you cannot take more, it will spoil, similar to in, uh, when we were gatherers. Um, and only at that point, uh, and, and, and after this experience over the course of um, 40 years, then we're kind of cleansed and ready to enter into back into our land. And this time we're actually going to be farmers. We're going to be farmers, and this is a distinct difference um, as to how we were originally as shepherds. But we're a much larger society at this point. We're going to enter into this land, become sovereign in it, um, set up a more elaborate form of kind of government and, and societal structures. And a main way we're going to feed ourselves is through agriculture. But the land that we are about to enter and possess is not like the land of Egypt. So this is 
this mandate to become farmers is presented in stark contrast to our experience in Egypt. Even the land itself is different. There, the grain you sowed had to be watered by your own labors, like a vegetable garden, right? You had the Nile River, which would flood each year, and the Egyptians were created these vast irrigation channels. You basically could grow food all year round. If anyone has spent time in Israel or the Middle East, you know there's a rainy season and a dry season. And the land um, of, of ancient Israel is a land of hills and valleys, and it soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. Right. So it's a, we're, we're going to be farmers, but we are going to be dependent on rain in a way that the Egyptians were not. As just one example of how our farming system is going to be differentiated from the Egyptian farming system. And then we're told that if we obey the commandments. Then gr God will, will grant rain for the land in season, early rain and late rain. And that we will gather in our grain and wine and oil and and there will be grass for the cattle in the field and we will have abundance so in other words we're dependent on the rain and the rain becomes this moral uh, indicator or, or th this collective this indicator of our moral well-being our collective moral well-being if we are enacting the, the practices that are being laid out in the torah many of which are agricultural in nature then our relationship with the planet will be in sync and things will flow. And if we stop, if we break that cycle, if we don't treat each other properly, if we don't follow these guidelines, if we don't adhere to this blueprint that's being laid out for us, then the rain is not gonna come in its proper time and we will essentially be exiled from the land, right? It won't work for us anymore. So even though we're gonna become farmers, we are, we are philosophically taking a different approach to it where we are, we, where we are constantly in a feedback loop with the natural world. If the natural world cycles are in sync and in flow, then that is a result of us being in flow with the kind of the moral way to, of existence. Um, so um, that is kind of the philosophical foundation of the Jewish farming perspective. Um, and then we get into some of the specifics, right? So if we, as we thought about the implications of farming and some of the um, negative implications being the consolidation of wealth and power, um, big social ec and economic hierarchies, um, kind of the, the oppressive nature of agriculture that we experienced in Egypt. Well, we are now going to see um, a series of agricultural laws that are meant to, as I understand them, kind of preempt a lot of these challenges. So we have the practice of peah, um, not le uh, harvesting all the way to the corners of our field, but leaving the corners unharvested so that people who do not have their own fields, their own land, can come and collect for themselves. Um, the same thing um, is there's uh, leket, which is um, kind of the gleanings, the things that that fall onto the ground, um, we don't collect. If we forget some of our harvest in the field, we don't go back and collect it. Um, these are some ways of allowing people who don't have their own, who are not experiencing food security, who are not, um, who don't have access to food to come and enable them to eat. Um, we also um, have, and this is just a small sampling, we, you know, we don't have time to get into all of the details here, but 
Um, we also have a set of laws that guide us in our relationship to animals that we're going to utilize in farming. So we're told not to plow with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. Um, why? Because an ox is significantly bigger and stronger than a donkey. And if they're um, harnessed together, then it would be the ox would be bearing more than its share of the weight and the donkey would be struggling to keep up. Both animals would be suffering. We don't muzzle an ox while it is threshing, which would basically be preventing it from eating while it's working. And we're not allowed to do that. Um, and then finally, we're given a set of, um, of commandments that have to do with our cycles of time and our relationship to work. Um, so um, actually, I'm going to, let me see, I think, here we go. Um, this is the first time that Shemitah is mentioned directly in the Torah, and it's mentioned in this larger context of Shabbat and also a reminder of our relationship to Egypt and our experience in Egypt. And it says, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Um, so, um, and then six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh year, you shall let it let rest and lay fallow and let the needy among your people eat of it. And what they leave, let the wild beasts eat of it. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in order that your ox and your donkey may have rest and that your bondsman and the stranger may be refreshed. Right. So there's this direct relationship between um, Shabbat, this, the one day out of a week where we rest, and Shemitah, the sabbatical year in which um, we don't farm. So putting that in a little bit of context, um, I want to ask, what do people know about the Shemitah year? What are some of the, we just read the first time it appears in the Torah, there's more texts we're going to look at, um, but what are, what are some of the practices or the guidelines, restrictions um, surrounding the Shemitah year? You can, again, either unmute yourself and call out, or you can drop some um, in the chat. Yeah, Lizzie says debts are forgiven and reset. Yes, and, and in fact, that's um, there's Shemitah is referenced three times in the Torah. The first two times are really about land um, uh, and what are the practices in that. And then the third time actually doesn't even mention land. Um, it just says that um, in the Shemitah year, if you had lent your neighbor any money at the end of the Shemitah year, that debt is forgiven. And I actually heard a very interesting um, teaching about that, which is um, that the debts of the Shemitah year are not actually forgiven until the end of the Shemitah year, right? Just before Rosh Hashanah at the end of the Shemitah year. So why is it that the debts are not forgiven at the beginning of the Shemitah year? Well, um, in an agricultural society, farmers accumulating debt is actually very common and part of the system, right? Farmers often have a lot of upfront costs and so they might need to borrow money because they're not going to get paid until they sell their harvests many months later. Um, this is if you're familiar with the CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Model, it essentially tries to prevent this uh, uh, 
prevent this situation by giving the farmers the money up front at the beginning of the season, and then they, they pay it out over the entire season with produce. So the Shemitah year is not necessarily meant to erase all debt. There's a certain type amount of debt that is kind of considered healthy, is important. It allows um, commerce to play out. Um, but if after a full year of not farming, meaning a full year where you have not engaged in any agricultural activity that might require you to borrow some money. If at the end of that year, you still owe money to someone else, then that debt is forgiven because it is not necessarily about erasing all debt. It's about preventing people from falling into deeper stages of poverty. And we know that we need to have some outlets for that. So one way of understanding um, the whole framework of Shemitah is it's, it's exactly that. It's exactly addressing the steps that someone in an agricultural society might um, take to fall into poverty. So um, to explain that, we need to go through a few of the, of the actual laws. Um, so we mentioned that you cease all agricultural activity, right? You don't farm your fields, you let the land rest. <clears throat> in doing so, the land actually becomes what's called in Hebrew hefker or ownerless, right? The word Shemitah itself actually means release. So one way of understanding it, and, and, and in the Torah, the, the Hebrew word Shemitah only appears in the third reference to Shemitah, which is about debts, where we release the debt. Shemitah doesn't show up in the first two about land, um, but one way of understanding it is that it's a year in which we release our claims of ownership, right? So the land that for six years I had been calling my field in the seventh year, our hefker belonged to everyone. So I have to take down or open up my fences. I can't prevent any being from accessing it, not just people, but even wild animals. So that land becomes ownerless. All debt is forgiven. And the, this is a practice that is clearly related to Shemitah, although it, it happens on its own cycle of seven years, whereas uh, this is a common question. Do, is everyone celebrate Shemitah at the same time? And the answer is yes. And this coming Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the next Shemitah year. Um, but in this one aspect of it, this, it, it happens independently, which is the term for indentured servitude in our tradition, if you owe money and you can't pay it off and you enter into a, an indentured servitude or a slave kind of arrangement where you're working off your debt, the terms of that sentence, so to speak, are six years and you're freed in the seventh. So if you think about in an agricultural society, the ways a person might <clears throat> slip into poverty, someone who's farming but maybe isn't so good at farming, the first thing they might do is just borrow money and then they keep borrowing money because they're not earning enough through their farming. At a certain point, they realize that um, farming is maybe not the right trade for them and they're going to get rid of their land. So they sell their land. Now they're landless and they owe a lot of money. So they might enter into um, some sort of arrangement to work off that debt and through indentured servitude. And Shemitah tries to address all three of those things. In the Shemitah year, all people have access to the same lands, all debt is forgiven, and after six years in the seventh year, um, all slaves are freed. Um, so 
those are a couple of the practices of, of Shemitah. Um, let me just share my screen again and get into a few more specifics. Um, okay, so this is the, this is the text about um, releasing the debt. Um, which, you know, it's interesting, like if, you know, we in, in contemporary capitalism, we basically have the same mechanism. It's called bankruptcy. Um, and I think that when you declare bankruptcy, it, it stays on your credit score for seven years. And I think that that is um, somehow tied to this notion. Um, okay, so um, no agricultural activity. All the land becomes commons and all the food is healthcare. It, it belongs to anyone. Um, food that is grown in, that grows on its own in the Shemitah year, um, right? Because there's going to be food that, that grows by itself without people doing anything. Um, that food has a special sanctity to it. That's called Kudushat Shvi'i, the sanctity of the seventh year. And you have to treat that a little bit differently. And one of the things that you have to do is um, you can't export that food. Now, um, again, feel free to drop this in the chat. If we're thinking about food that, um, that will grow on its own in the Shemitah year, what kind of foods are we talking about? Right, this is one of the most common questions about Shemitah. Well, like if you're not farming, then what are we eating? Um, well, first of all, important to note that, that Modern Homo sapiens have been around for roughly 200,000 years, is my understanding, and we've been farming for somewhere between 10 and 24,000 years. So we've lived most of our lives on this planet without farming, right? So clearly, like we can survive without farming. Our mindset has been: we are so. This is agriculture is the water that we swim in so much so that it's hard for us to even fathom what it would be like to live, to feed ourselves without farming. And certainly when you have over 7 billion people on the planet, it's a very different, you need a different food system than we did when there were 100,000 people on the planet. Um, so yeah, Hannah says fruit from trees, right? So, um, you know, going back to um, thinking about the agricultural system in the lands of ancient Israel, we have the seven sacred species of Israel, five of them are fruit from fruit trees. And the other two are wheat and barley, which were kind of the first domesticated grains, right? So you can imagine a diet that has some bread, has wheat, it has barley, which are relatively easy to store in surplus. Um, they can last for a while. And then fruit, right? And, and animal products. And that's kind of your main diet, right? When, when we think about our contemporary diets, which are so heavily based on annual crops, crops that we have to plant again year after year after year. That is the majority of what we eat in this country um, and in, I think in much of the world today. Um, it's hard to imagine switching to a Shemitah diet because it, it's hard to completely shift gears like that. But if you think about what the diet in ancient Israel was, it's actually more conducive to, um, to this practice. Um, Uh, so yes, this, um, all the food has the sanctity of the seventh year. Um, it cannot be sold and it has to be used when it's in its most elevated form, um, which means that things that like oranges, I guess this is very subjective, but 
you might be able to eat the fruit, but you can't juice an orange that grew on its own in the Shemitah year in the land of Israel. Eat local. You can only eat the foods that are actively growing in your region at the time. So let's say, for example, you have a bunch of volunteer tomatoes that have grown up in your garden during the Shemitah year, and you go out and you collect some in a bowl to eat for the next day or two, which is totally okay by Shemitah practices. And that night there's a super hard frost and all the tomatoes are, 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 are killed. You're not allowed to eat those tomatoes anymore that you brought in because you are not allowed to have access to food that the wild animals are not allowed to have, that don't, the wild animals don't have access to. Um, and so it, it, it requires that in the Shemitah year, you not only can food not be exported out of the land, but you can't even eat food that is from another region of the land if it's not growing in your specific region. Um, <clears throat> so um, we have a bunch of economic uh, practices around the Shemitah year. Um, Shemitah produce cannot be sold. Um, it, and what's cool, it cannot be sold on like a commercial level. It can be sold in a very informal way, but you're actually not allowed to like weigh it out and give a very specific price. It's more like sometimes you go to the farmer's market and there's just like a bag of whatever for a dollar, right? It's like that. You, um, you can't actually weigh it out, which is interesting because in the Torah, it actually tells us very specifically that we have to have very accurate weights and measures so that when we're selling things, we're not cheating anyone. Um, but in, in this particular situation, we kind of have to like move to a different set of rules economically, which I think is really fascinating. Um, the debt release and, um, um, and the release of slaves are some of the economic implications. Um, so I want to, as we're kind of moving towards the end, I wanna um, think about some of the ways that this can kind of manifest in a more contemporary context. Um, as we are thinking about um, the Shemitah year coming up and what does that mean for us? Because on a very technical kind of legalistic level, for those of us living in outside of the borders of ancient Israel, um, the agricultural aspects of Shemitah don't apply to us. But this is not something that we have any obligation to follow. The debt forgiveness is, that is something that applies universally around the world. Um, so you can think about that. Is there anyone who owes you any money or do you owe anyone money on kind of a personal level that you want to maybe think about that and, and see if it's ready to kind of forgive that debt? But one of the things that I, um, what I find inspiring about Shemitah, especially living outside of the land of Israel, is that it kind of gives us some flexibility to be creative in our thinking about um, how we might want to honor this tradition. Um, so for me, one of the um, one of the one of the really exciting um, or, or very yeah very compelling idea that I think has a lot to you can really dive into this is um, coming back to this idea of debt forgiveness. Most of us, I mean, maybe we lend some money here or there. Um, to friends or family as needed. But most of us are not necessarily in the habit of making a lot of loans, financial loans. Um, 
at the time that these laws were developed, there were no banks that were doing that. It wasn't, there was no kind of um, industry around lending money. So it's a different context. But, but I think for us, the idea of holding on to debt is something that can really apply um, across the board. What are the ways that we might be holding on to some sort of debt that we feel like someone owes us? Whether it's like an apology or, ah, here we go, Lisa just says, can debt include emotional tolls? Exactly, Lisa knew exactly where I was going. So um, yeah, do we feel like someone owes us a phone call or an apology um, or an invitation to something? And we've just kind of let that linger. Well, our tradition actually gives us an expiration date for those types of debt, and it's coming up. And the Shemitah year presents us with this opportunity to, um, to, to let go of that, to release these feelings that we might be holding on to um, for the betterment of the world, um, for ourselves as individuals and for the betterment of the world. Um, so that's one idea on kind of, you know, applicable to people who don't garden, don't farm, are not working with food necessarily, um, but who want to connect with this idea, I think that presents a very powerful idea. Um, uh, yeah, David, David suggests expanding a little bit more on the idea of the commons. I think there's, there's some really, when we think about the laws and the practices and the implications of the Shemitah year, um, and we want to bring them into a modern context, there's actually numerous examples of this already happening, kind of Shemitah embodied values being applied to contemporary economic and food production systems, right? So um, in some areas you have things like local currencies or um, barter economies um, that are much less formal that keep resources local, right? The, you could argue the CSA movement, the farmer's market, market movement, just the ideas of eating local are certainly embodied in the Shemitah uh, values. Um, ah, so Helen asks a good question about what about more recent loans, loans that were just given right before the Shemitah year. So the Torah actually anticipates this. The Torah says, um, you know, don't be greedy. And in the fifth or sixth year, when your neighbor comes to you and asks for money, say, no, 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 the Shemitah year is coming. I'm not going to give you money because it's just gonna, I'm not gonna get my money back. And in fact, in those years, you have to be generous and give to them. And sure enough, people didn't really follow that. Um, so then there was an exception that was made, a, a legal kind of fix, where for the Shemitah year, the, the, the debt can kind of be transferred to the Beit Din, to the courts, and then given back to the original holder after the Shemitah year. Um, so it's a loophole that was meant to kind of make sure that people were still lending money as they needed to. Um, but it's certainly not the ideal, right? Keep in mind that these loans that people were making in this context were interest-free loans in the first place. People were not allowed to charge interest. So no one's making money off of these loans. These loans are an act of generosity in the first place. Um, and so I guess it's just kind of encouraging us to, um, encouraging us to be generous and, and then even be more generous if we realize that that money is not gonna come back our way. Um, so I want to I want to close with just a um, a quick thought, um, which is that the Shemitah year. I think there's a lot there. Obviously, in just under an hour, you see we're just kind of scratching the surface of some of the potential. There are some tremendous resources out there, um, which you might be aware of already. Chazon, 
um, had put together what's probably the most comprehensive Shemitah resource manual source book um, out there. They did it in time for last Shemitah year, um, and maybe there's updates coming for this Shemitah year, but that is available for free on Chazon's website, and I highly recommend it. It has all of the original source texts as well as a lot of exploration about how you apply this to um, contemporary contexts. Um, and for me, what the way that I like to think about it is that um, at the park down the street from my house, every Saturday, there's a group that comes together for LARPing. Um, for people who are not familiar, LARPing is live action role play. So there are maybe like 50 people come out with foam swords and they just like have the best time for four hours playing different versions of Capture the Flag and they just get really into this live action role play. Well, I kind of think of society as just a giant live action role play. And um, the Torah and the blueprint is kind of a, an instruction manual for playing in a certain way. And the goal of our game, in as I understand it, is that it never ends, is that it just keeps going. And we know from both ancient and modern examples that when you have huge disparities of wealth, and huge economic and social hierarchies in societies, those are societies that don't last. Eventually they crumble, and usually they crumble under violent and not very um, pleasing uh, conditions. And so the Shemitah year is this kind of escape valve. It's a pressure release valve for society on both economic and um, on, on environmental and economic and social terms. And so I invite us all to think about this coming year as an opportunity to press reset and release some of the pressure that's been building up on, in, in our lives on personal levels, um, maybe in your family, on a communal level, and certainly we can zoom out and think about things on a societal level. So um, I invite you to um, keep exploring more on this topic. Um, not only is the Chazon resource a really good one, but on their website, they also have links to numerous other resources, some of which are ju just been mentioned in the chat. Um, and thanks for coming out today and um, and feel free to be in touch, um, <laughs> despite I know this. Um, I don't know, but Dayenu, the organization I work for has had a few meetings with his team and so I can make sure that one of them gets the word to him. Um, but feel free to reach out. Um, I'm gonna drop my email in the chat. Um, if, if anyone's interested in um, being more in touch. And until then, I want to wish you a happy Sunday, um, a happy Adar. Purim is coming. Um, and before we know it, it will also be the Shemitah year. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Nati. That was great. What a wealth of knowledge. We feel really privileged yeah. that you kicked this off for us. Um, just to have, take a minute, if anybody wants to share appreciations in the chat, now is a great time to do so. Um, you can join us for our next conversation, which will be uh, next month, Sunday the 21st, March 21st, um, where we'll be talking about economic justice and alternative economies with Greg Watson of the Schumacher Center and Rabbi Rahel Kontrasser of TRUA, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights. Um, and this and all other episodes of the Acting for Change Creating Justice Speaker Series will be available to listen on the Jaffe Space podcast. Thank you, everybody.